hear me? Good. Okay, good. Uh, welcome to church. A couple things real quick. We got a lot of text to get to. Um, happy Father's Day. Um, if you're a dad in the room, would you stand up? We just want to honor you. Got some dads? Awesome. Some of y'all are football and babies. That's awesome. All right, grab a seat. Uh, I, it's funny, when I was growing up, I thought like buying a motorcycle, uh, getting a tattoo, and uh, living on the road, that's what real rebellion is. And when I became an adult, I realized there's very few things that you can do uh, more rebellious in our culture than become a man, right? Get married to a woman and love her your whole life and father a whole bunch of kids and then come to church. Uh, and so for all you real rebels with a cause, welcome. Um, I don't know if there's anything that we can do in culture uh, that will have a greater impact um, to, than to raise up godly young men uh, to be future husbands and fathers and leaders. And so um, I'm, I love this church because there's great intentionality uh, about raising up godly masculinity. And uh, there's so many dads and fathers and individuals in here who just stoke me and encourage me uh, to be a better man. And so I appreciate you brothers. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to get into the text. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you are the one who gave us Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one who took the cross for our sin and shame. You are the one who suffered betrayal so that we might be accepted. You are the one worthy of all of our worship and all of the worship of all of creation at all times is due to your great and glorious name. And so, Father, would you come here and rescue us from our low thoughts about who you are, what is due towards you, our low views of sin. Would you, um, through your word and for your glory, raise our eyes to see the universe the way you see the universe? God, I thank you for the husbands, the fathers, the dads in here the great sacrifices that they make that remind us of Jesus. But God, get all of us out of the way. Make Jesus explicit. Um, convict us of sin, Holy Spirit, and lead us into gospel trust. That's what we beg of you. So come now and be the pastor. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. I appreciate my brother Dennis Taylor last week getting to uh, preach the word and faithfully handle the word. I love his house church that meets. Um, he's just a dear brother to me. He finished up chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. Think about this. We've put nearly a hundred hours of sermon work in the Gospel of Mark in the last couple of years. And so uh, we've just said when we go through books of the Bible, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we kind of uh, deep dive into those books. Chapter 13 almost ends on a high note, if you can bear with that. Jesus coming on the clouds with glory. His word is to be eternally trustworthy and kind of like a, a spiritual 
high point that is coming in the future. Chapter 14, we got a shifting of gears and the mood rain uh, changes to a deep purple, if you know what I'm talking about. It's a bit more of an ominous tone that hits in chapter 14, a tone of uh, betrayal, people having mixed reactions to Jesus, and, and we're, we're sliding towards the cross in this account of Passion Week in chapter 14. And so, chapter 14, 1 through 11, um, is going to use a tactic that if you've been here with us in the last couple years, and you've been studying Mark for 13 chapters, this would not be your first experience with what's called a Markan sandwich. What we talk about is, oftentimes Mark will sandwich one story that doesn't necessarily happen chronologically there in between two other accounts because the thing in the middle or the thing on the edges helps explain one another. Does that make sense? So what we're going to have here is, in, chap- in chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, is we're going to have an account of the Passover feast um, of unleavened bread. And, um, th- and we talked about this before, that the Jews, their calendar was a part of their catechism. Like they discipled from their calendar. It is not uh, coincidental accidental or ironic that Jesus is going to die on the Passover. It's intentional. And we're going to have in the midst of this, in verses 1 and 2, a group of people that by, here's the word, stealth are going to assault Jesus. So here's here's the flavor of what we're talking about. Secret meetings. Gossip. Slander. Private hatred that's looking for the right opportunity to express itself. Then, that's the first loaf of bread, a piece of bread. Then in the middle, three through nine, we're going to have this unbelievable, beautiful act of worship that's going to happen. So opposite of that, we're going to have a very public, almost embarrassing, open and unashamed expression of love towards Jesus. Then, shift back, we're going 10 through 11, and we're going back to Judas's betrayal, back to the backstabbing, and stuff. And if you're going to understand what tips Judas off to become what he becomes and to do what he does, Mark is saying somehow, 3 through 9, like, it's got, it's got a role to play. Um, so, we do this all the time um, in movies. Movies, in order to better tell the story, will flash back to something that you have to understand in the past to understand what's happening in the present. If you want to get the drama, you got to get the backstory. So, like, if you go right now or on Tuesday where it's $5 at the movie theater and you go watch Top Gun Maverick, if you didn't watch the first one, it just ain't going to hit the same way. You hear what I'm saying? Spoiler alert, it's awesome, all right? Uh, <clears throat> this event is going to interpret for us Judas. So at this feast, which of these feasts, these were a couple of the obligatory feasts of the Jews. We've talked about in the past. There's somewhere, Josephus would say, ancient Jewish historian, 1.1 million people have descended 
on Jerusalem. And here's what it says. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes, we've talked about both those in the past, were seeking how. This is the, this is the problem. How? To arrest him by, look at the Bible, stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They do not fear God, they fear man. And they're not dumb. They know how to read the room and understand the context of the moment that they're in. This Feast of Unleavened Bread, this Passover, was a massive party which God's people gather together, think about this, to celebrate God's liberation and His salvation in the Old Testament. Right? Like Charlton Heston's involved and all that kind of stuff. Right? It's like, let my people go, blood on the doorstep, passing over, all that stuff about liberation and salvation. Here's the equivalent. You can't just show up in America on the 4th of July and start taking people's freedoms without catching a firework to the face. You know what I'm saying? You can't be the Grinch on Christmas stealing. Why are you trying to make people work on Labor Day? Right? So they're kind of understanding that they're cornered and that their window of opportunity has to be perfect. Now, Jesus will absolutely die on the Passover. The Bible is going to say according to God's foreordained plan. But they of their own volition are doing evil to bring it about. This is underneath the sovereignty of God. So then, let me skip ahead, okay? Because that's the first piece of bread on the sandwich. Go to 10 through 11. And listen, there's a lot of stuff here today. I would really encourage taking notes. 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot. Which is, I always love that it details that because if you actually know the names, the actual names, not the nicknames of the disciples, there's more than one Judas. And uh, I love that when John writes his gospel, he says Judas, the other one. Um, Who was one of the twelve? Why does it say that? He's inner circle level. He's close. Went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. The word is betray. And when they heard it, the opponents of Jesus, they were glad. There are people right now that if you betrayed Jesus, would be glad. And they'd make promises to you. And they promise to give him what he really loves. They, they, they'll give him money. And so he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the, two, the other loaf of bread. So let's talk here for a second. Have you ever been betrayed? I mean betrayed. Jesus has. One of the twelve, one that was close to him. Have you ever close to you? One that you broke bread with, that maybe you wept with, that you served with, that you laughed with, that you became blood brothers with. Maybe you put a ring on their finger with. Have you ever been punched by betrayal by a family member? Or a friend. 
Have you ever had a business partner and they just screwed you over? Have you had that hung out to dry such that you can't sleep, you can't eat? That kind of like deep hurt, sick to the stomach, this makes you sick to your bones, doesn't it? Have you ever been sold out? Left hanging. Because here's the thing. We're going to get to three through nine. And right next to a genuine friend who really loves Jesus is right next to Jesus is a fake friend who poses with no distinguishing marks that he's not genuine to us on the outside. I mean... Have you ever watched, I don't want to get into many movies, but have you ever watched in the movies, like maybe watched a movie with your kids, or the first time that you watch a certain movie that have a rat in it? Like somebody who sells out the main character. And if you watch The Matrix, in the first movie The Matrix, not these 17 more they're about to make. The originals, all right? You watch The Matrix... The guy, Cypher, who chooses to go back into the Matrix and live the lie rather than it, like embrace the truth and the suffering that comes with that, the moment that that hits, don't you just kind of like throw up in your mouth a little bit? I mean, Frito Corleone. I know you haven't seen that because you're Christians. It's from The Godfather. Right? Lando Calrissian. Early movies. Star Wars. Ever a Snape? Harry Potter, none of you have seen Reservoir Dogs because you're saved, I'm sure, right? But they, listen, writers and storytellers, they weave this in the story because it's something we all experience. Have you ever been betrayed? Let me say it in other ways. Are you breathing? Have you been alive more than one day? Have you, do you have a relationship with anyone? Let's put it another way. Even, let's back up. Even a, a genuine friend, a good friend, a Christian brother or sister can make mistakes and hurt you. Amen? Like they can. Much less someone who is enslaved to the sin of gossip enslaved to the sin of slander, enslaved to selfishness, much less somebody that's two-faced or, or they say one thing to your face and another behind your back, much less liars or those like here that are doing things by stealth. Even a good friend can screw up, y'all. Here's what I would argue, and I, I don't know if you can hang with me on this, but it's better... To be in gospel community, fulfilling your God-ordained purpose in the kingdom, than to check out, miss out, or have no tribe at all. I shared uh, the gospel uh, with a lady that was in California. I was at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California this last week. Had opportunity to share the gospel, and she claimed to be this person you've probably met. It's like, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't, I don't go to church. I don't have a church. And I'm like... I. I don't, I don't understand that. 
I say, I, I, I'm just telling you right now, like, I biblically cannot understand someone who claims to be a Christian and to love Jesus, but don't love what he loves and what he gave his life for. Now, is church messy? Absolutely. Would I attend all of them? Absolutely not. Right? But to say you ain't got nobody on the earth with the Holy Spirit that you can't job with, mm, somebody ain't got the Spirit. That's where I'm at. All right? So, started to share. And, and I just, I sympathize with her. She's like, listen, I have been hurt before. I have been betrayed. And, and I think I get that. Now, oftentimes we'll say the church betrayed me. The church hurt me. Most of the time, that's not true. It ain't like we did a business meeting here and let's all vote. Everybody vote. Who wants to hate on Toby? Right? Everybody, are, for yes, raise your hand. Don't raise your hand right now. This is, a, this, this is rhetorical, all right? Rhetorical. Right? No church got together and voted to be a jerk to you. What probably happened is it was, a, it was one or a few people. Amen? But she gets hurt and now she's like, love Jesus can't do the church thing. And I will say, I said to her, I said, if that is true, you will never grow in your love for Jesus and you will never fulfill your purpose why God created you. Because church community is irreplaceable in your life. So here's my argument. Whether it's fake friends or even genuine friends that are going to screw up, it's still better to have a tribe. To not miss out. And, and I'm not saying that betrayal doesn't hurt. What I'm saying is betrayal hurts. And, and even if I had to put it this way, I think that betrayal, you can disagree with this. I think that damage that happens from betrayal is worse than physical abuse. You heal differently from physical abuse than you do betrayal. It lingers. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. What I'm saying is grace is bigger. It's, grace is bigger than any wound I have or you have or we will have. That truth overcomes lies and that Jesus is a faithful friend. That's why I'm leaving it. Now, look at the... That's the context and the setting of what we now need to know from 3 through 9 to, to see what motivated the betrayal. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... Now, pause. If you're a Bible student... I, this gets kind of tricky. There is an account of Jesus being anointed in Luke that is different from this one that happens earlier in his ministry. Likely what happens is this woman that's going to come picks up on what she did, repackages it, and does something similar, but for a different purpose that has to do with his burial, which he mentions here. This account is paralleled in Matthew and John. Okay? And so I'm going to, throughout this sermon, kind of be piecing together things from those other accounts to give the fullest picture of what happens here. This account, even from the language, and while he was at Bethany, that doesn't mean that it happened at the same time of the two days before. What he's saying is, I'm switching back to this other account. This account happened six days uh, 
uh, prior, okay? And while he's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, what's awesome about this is he's not currently a leper, right? Otherwise, ain't nobody coming to his birthday party. Y'all know what leprosy is, right? That was underwhelming reaction. What's awesome about this is someone who used to be an outcast is now hosting parties for Jesus. He's known as the leper and likely understood to be one who was healed and cleansed by Jesus. Multiple counts of Jesus healing lepers throughout his ministry. This is the house of Simon the leper. What we learn from John <coughs> is that Jesus' Bethany posse is here as well. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is the one that was raised from the dead by Jesus. He's also, we learn in the Gospel of John, on a hit list because his very existence is a problem for the leadership. And that brother, he's here at the party as well, which I'm sure he's just taking a couple sick days off. He's like, bro, I was dead like last week. I'm, I'm chilling for a few days. Like, all right, so he's at the party, and it says that they're there reclining. When they eat, they don't kind of set upright like some of you are doing right now. Um, they reclined. They kind of leaned, and they laid on couches. So as a result of this, they would wash regular common practice. They would wash their feet before they come into a place. They ain't nobody trying to lounge on a couch and eat grapes next to your stank feet. And then it wouldn't be uncommon for the host to have like a small ointment or something and just dab you up so that you smell nice coming in. It's just kind of a different practice of hospitality. In France, where we lived, one of the practices of hospitality is that when you have people come over, the people that come over bring a gift. We don't practice that here, all right? But that's a practice in France. They have different customs that match different hospitality. In France, usually it's a bottle of wine. So if you're going over to one of our deacon's houses, just, you know, claim your French and take a bottle. Uh, so, we've got the Bethany crew here at Simon the leper's, formerly leper's house, and they've, they've got, what, great food going on? What, do they got great conversation? They're passing the vibe check? Okay, young people, they're chilling, right? Old people, they, they visit him. Right? They just, it's just awesome. I, and it says a woman comes up. As he was reclining table, a woman. Now we learn from John's account that this is Mary. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus. So remember the account where it's like, Martha, Martha, you are bothered by many things? That word bothered is exactly the word Jesus used, stop bothering her. Isn't that awesome? Mary is the one, there's these weird, interesting things about the Bible. Every time you see Philip in the Bible, he's telling somebody else about Jesus. Every time you see this Mary in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. It's curious, right? And, and she comes to Jesus, and we're going to learn from the other account. Here, anoints his head. The other account anoints his feet. Well, which is it? Well, if you understand how much she drops, she does head, shoulders, knees, and toes here. She, from head to feet, she's just going to douse the brother in a Coke can full of pure nard. 
All right, so she comes in, a nar very costly, and she broke it. Note that. She broke it, the flask, and poured it on his head. And, there, and anything you pour at this capacity is going to hit the whole body. And there was some there said, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble or bother her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you could do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let me tell you how crazy that last statement is. Jesus has the following of a local high school football team at this point. What? Maybe American soccer. Like, he doesn't even have the level of following of the Denver Broncos who hadn't been to the playoffs in God knows when. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Right? You got an obscure teacher with a small following in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. If you're, if you're a non-believer and you're a secular here and you don't believe the Bible, a man just said that this woman will be talked about all over the world where the Gospels preach. And now in Colorado, I think we're the ends of the earth. I think we're the furthest you can get from there. We're sitting here talking about this girl. If you're not a believer, what do you do with that? That some dude with the following of maybe a high school football team at this point, is going to say that he's going to be so renowned all over the world, even those people that honor him are going to be known all over the world. That's bananas. Unless he's the son of God and knows the future. Come back. What does he say? What is going on here? A woman, not Mary Magdalene, bothered, and Lazarus, who's on a hit list, and Simon the leper. It's so hilarious. Nobody assembles a group of people like Jesus. All right. Here's what she has. She's at the feet of Jesus with an alabaster flask of pure nard. We know that it's costly. 300 denarii. 300 denarii is the equivalent of about a year's wage. Now, I love my wife. I like that my wife smells good. But if you're a brother in here that spent a year's wages on her perfume, I want to talk to you after the service. Because I, I, I need some help with that. Pure nard would have been about a year's wages. It's a pound. It's a Roman pound or um, 11.5 ounces or what's called a litre or 327 grams if you're in here and you know, you're a drug dealer that uses the metric system. All right? So, and it's... Nard, which was from northern India, they literally got this from the foothills of the Himalayas. Now, you may not play with maps very often except during dull sermons, but that takes a minute to get from the Himalayas to the Middle East, right? They, and that's a dangerous trade route. We're talking about something undiluted, which drug dealers and our essential oils friends in here understand purity matters and she got this thing which would have been worth a year's wages 
So here's basic observation. You ain't buying this thing at a gas station. Right? This is specialty shopping. This is Fifth Avenue level purchase. This would have probably been some sort of family heirloom. It could have been a part of a dowry or an inheritance. Think about this as their financial security blanket. Because here's the deal. Instead of having like a year's wages in a bag, have it in an object. It's the Bitcoin of its day. Plummeted. Um, what, What is she doing with her security financial... She's giving Jesus her future. Tangibly. She's trusting Jesus with her future. How many women in here, scared of things to come, would rather hoard than be holy? She gives Jesus her future. Fearless, knowing not what the future may hold, but knowing who holds her hand. Breaks the thing and pours a Coke can level of nar. Here's the theological term for this. She douses the Lord. This is extravagant. This is over the, this is extreme. Here's what's really sad in this room. Here's, I, I feel this for myself. I, I, I hope you can enter into this and, and, and connect with this in some way. Here's what's really sad. What's really sad in this room is that there are people in this room that are going to call themselves Christians their whole life. And they will never, ever, even once, love Jesus like this. That's sad. There's going to be people calling themselves Christians their whole life and never push their chips in the middle of the table like this. It's too risky. It's too costly. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. What will people say about me? Isn't that part of the problem here? She's not doing this without criticism. And I'm afraid that some of us in here are going to live our whole lives with stored up treasures and miss the chance to do something eternal for our king. The problem is we're hoarders. We're not holy. And isn't this in all of us? Like, it's hilarious. When you leave today, if you've got multiple kids, go down town to our knockoff Dairy Queen alright and buy one ice cream for all your kids and see who's generous right have you ever had a drink and you, really, you bought that drink for you parents you gave, you gave the cup one sip to your kid you drank all my drink right how about this Father's Day we don't have a Chili's but if, you had it, if we had one go to Chili's order the molten how many spoons you getting? Right? That's right. As many spoons 
as people paying for it. Right? Oh, I wasn't hungry until dessert, so you got it. Right? We gobble. We don't give. This is strange to the flesh. It's strange. She's generous. She's not stingy. She's not tight-fisted. She's not hoarding. She's not playing it safe. Here's the, t- the timing of this is unbelievable. She either, listen to me, and, and get this about your own life. She either does this now or she doesn't do it. She will not have another chance. And I have to be real with you. You have a second chance for many things with the Lord. But you do not have a second chance for everything. Sometimes you get one shot. That's it. And either you carpe diem that thing or you don't. You're not always going to get a second chance. Jesus says she did what she could. When she could. Have you ever been there to a funeral where you have a loved one. And the loved one dies. And you ask the question. After they die, what more could I have done? Have you ever felt that? Like their life ended, it was abrupt. I wish I would have. What more? Because we understand that we had an opportunity with them, and now it's over. Some things, the window of opportunity to do them closes. Tell me that's not right. She comes and seizes the opportunity. She refuses to wait while now is open. I'm going to go to missions. I'm going to share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm going to live simply and give generously. I'm going to serve God tomorrow. All you have is right here and right now. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. She is not going to risk tomorrow when the window for now is open. Do you hear me? Small opportunity. That's what your life is. Your life is a small opportunity to do something great for Jesus. She chooses to do something while others stand around and nitpick while they do nothing. You want a summary of many churches? That's it. A bunch of people oftentimes sitting around saying what can't be done or what shouldn't be done while there's other people out there doing it. Long after all their opportunities are gone, she will eternally have this moment with her king. Here's one of the most profound things about this passage I learned this week. It says that she broke it. 
Like, and different theologians would argue that she didn't have to do that, um, or that she did, and it's an alabaster jar, kind of like a soft stone marble kind of thing. But I think that's important. It says that she broke it, and then it says, why did she do this? It says, for my burial. Which, if you've been paying attention throughout the Gospel of Mark, you probably picked up on that. What does she know that the disciples are still confused about? She's anointing him for his burial. Right? Like, it doesn't seem, tell me, does it seem like the disciples are on board with this whole death for sin thing? No. Go back to 831, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. 931, right? Death, resurrection. 10, 33, predicts death and resurrection. And the brothers don't get it. Just a fun experiment. Don't, don't answer out loud. Men, what was the last thing your wife said about her feelings? Oh, drawing a blank? There's a big surprise. Ladies, what was the 14 things you didn't like your husband saying in 2005? Oh, you got that just trapped in there forever? That's weird, right? She knows what time it was, the date, and what she was wearing. You know that you were alive and maybe you had a kid, right? Like, let's just put it out there that the girls are maybe holding on to things a little better. All she had to do was be paying attention to Jesus' teaching and not asleep like the boys, and she might have been able to hold on to this thing about burial and what God is doing through this. Right? For my burial. Now, this is, not, this is commonly done. When people would bury people, um, they would anoint them um, because they stink. People just, in general, stink. Okay? Imagine this is, this whole party's taking place like pre-baths, right? So imagine pre-pubescent or pubescent middle school boys' locker room smells just everywhere, right? She's not dousing him with Axe body spray or Old Spice or Stetson. You know what Stetson is? Just alcohol you put on your wounds, right? She's not doing that. She's going full Johnny Depp Dior. She, she's got the good stuff here. And it says that she takes it and that when she breaks it, the other account says it fumigates the whole room. She turns the thing into a weaponized warfare in the room. She douses Jesus with it, but everybody in the room. You ever had somebody like a friend that wore too much like perfume and stuff and you, run, you rub up next to them and all of a sudden you smell fancy, right? Like you, you forgot, but you know, they're wearing enough for seven of us. Like she... Br- She breaks the jar and fumigates the room and it rubs off on others that are around. Listen to this. This is awesome. The point, this vial was broken open and poured out. It looked, tell me this isn't wrong, it looked like a waste. But it turns out to be a blessing to everyone near it. Jesus, Jesus was broken for our sin and his blood was poured out looking like a total waste. But in truth, it was something that was done that we might share in its beauty 
and it's blessing. Have you ever benefited from the broken and poured out Christ? He's going to a grave for us all, and she's anointing him as he shows us the gospel in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Now here's what happens when she does this. There's two rebukes that happened in this passage. The first rebuke comes, and it says here some of them. But in the other accounts, it says that Judas is actually the spokesman for a whole group of them that are not on board with what she's doing. Judas is going to be the spokesman here. Okay? Judas is going to come and offer the first rebuke. The first rebuke from what she's doing, he, the Bible is going to say, scolds her. The posture of his heart is indignant. It looks irrational. He's big mad. He's got trouble with her. Here's, if you're in the military, he, he's chewing her out. This is what's unbelievable. The tongue lashing that he's giving her in, is cloaked in social justice verbiage. Tell me I'm wrong. Unlashing that he's giving her is cloaked in social justice verbiage. What about the poor? What about the poor? See, social justice in that day and in our day seeks to look pious by virtue signaling and posting on social media instead of actually being righteous by the gospel and then doing real justice, even if it's not popular or even if nobody sees it. Ain't nobody trying to do social justice if I can't tweet about it. But if someone will really get the gospel, they will do righteousness and justice even at great expense to themselves, and even if it's unpopular and not trending on Instagram. See, he cloaks social justice like what Judas is appealing to, browbeats anyone who doesn't agree with them or their methods. It wrongly modifies justice. And I've said this before, the moment you put prosperity in front of gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. The gospel needs no worldly modifiers. The moment you start to put social in front of justice, justice is good on its own. It ceases to be biblical justice because we're just going to play semantics on words. But what happens here is going to be hard for you to swallow. Here's what it is. All the social justice in the world is not more valuable than the worship of Jesus. The great commandment does not call us to love man first. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, not first, is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. What secular humanism does as a religion is it substitutes man For God. It idolizes man. To the point where it would say. The gospel 
is a social gospel that when we serve the poor, that is the gospel. And we don't need Christ's death, his suffering, his resurrection, or his life. It's ministry without the master. It's an imitation of Christianity without Christ. And I'm telling you right now, it, it will be a, they will appear to be generous and want to appear to be charitable. And if you dare question their motives or their methods, you will find yourself in a dogfight. Tell me I'm wrong. He cloaks it. Jesus offers the second rebuke that's in this passage. In verse 6, he calls what she does beautiful. He calls it beautiful. Verse 7, it's timely. Right? Like it's right on time. A helpful. It helps witness to the gospel. Nine, it'll be remembered. What she does is legendary. Now, when it comes to the poor, some people love Jesus and are generous, and some people just want to look generous. We talked about that, which is interesting. When we talked about the widow's might, we discussed another great woman of the faith who leads by example. But, I mean, riddle me this. Do you think Judas really cares about the poor? I mean, help me out here. Is there anybody arguing that? Judas talks like a politician running for office. Who's an expert in how other people should spend their money. But for him, because he doesn't love God, he doesn't treasure Jesus. He can't serve both God and money. So he serves money. Here's my argument. We love work with the poor. Our church gives, I don't know, I, I, have, I do nothing with money here, so I have no idea what we do. Zillions, that's a made-up number. We give zillions to benevolence, all right? We give as much as we possibly can and spend it as liberally as we possibly can for benevolence. We, this church loves the, serving the poor and doing good. There, there is, I would say in a year, hundreds of acts that this church does in benevolence where most of you won't know 99 of them. Because we don't let our left hand know what our right is, and we're not here to trumpet our good works. We love the poor in this church. I know that they happen because I get the emails, all right? We love the poor. We just never put it above Jesus. Do, do, do you track with that? Because if we get that backwards, if we don't start at Jesus' feet, we won't serve the poor the same way. We won't have right priorities about it. It won't be eternally informed by truth in how we serve the poor. And we might just do the poor more damage than we do good. So we've got to start with God and the gospel. We've got to start there. Truth be known. And I'll, I'll argue it with any social justice warrior. Nobody does more good for the poor than the church all over the world. Nobody. And it comes from our teaching. 
Jesus comes to the rich man, says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Right? Jesus says, that what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. We have a way of serving God through serving the poor. Even further, Paul has the Jerusalem council in Acts to make sure that those in Jerusalem and those in the Gentile world were preaching the same gospel. Comes back to the Jerusalem. Okay, we're on the same page about doctrines and beliefs. And they only encourage me to continue to serve the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That they brought up the poor and how to serve the poor. Listen, Christians have always cared about the poor. God's people, Old, New Testament, have always cared about the poor. But all the social justice in the world is not more valuable than our God. Do you get it? Man, if you in here think Jesus, Judas really cares about the poor, I got oceanfront property in Arizona for you. Right? The, the Bible is going to say that Judas was the keeper of the money bag. Anybody heard that before? And it says that he was a thief. So throughout Jesus' ministry, you got this cat that's like skimming off the top, embezzling. How about maybe that this story is here? Because Judas sees a cash cow slip away. What's, what's a little bit of a skim off of 300 denarii? Right? He's starting to see now that he is not going to get rich off of this Jesus thing, and he's out. 